0: Lord, we come before you rejoicing in your abundant kindness to us. I am once again reminded of how ill-equipped I am to preach the word, and yet you delight to use broken vessels so that it will just strip away any of the credit from ourselves and give that credit to you alone. So I pray that you would help now as we look at the word, that you would help us, that you would chip away the pride in our hearts, that you would humble us, that you would also encourage us and point us to the hope that can only be found in Jesus Christ and in the gospel. We ask in his name, amen. In uh, February of 2014, two feminist authors were invited to speak and engage in a debate at Brown University. Ironically, one of these two feminist authors was perceived by the students to be two conservative they believed that her ideas were triggering and so the college president responded to this by offering an alternative event that students could attend at the same time as this event that would offer an alternative perspective and that was not enough for some students the fact that this feminist scholar was judged to be too conservative uh, and the fact that this scholar was even on campus, even present on campus, was still uh, too triggering for some students. And so one of the students took action. And I'm going to read to you a summary of what happened here from the book, The Coddling of the American Mind. Uh, They write this, the student worked with other Brown students to create a safe space where anyone who felt triggered could recuperate and get help. The room was equipped with cookies, coloring books, bubbles, Play-Doh, calming music, pillows, blankets, and a video of frolicking puppies, as well as students and staff members purportedly trained to deal with trauma. Later on, the author's comment and say this, if you see yourself or your fellow students as candles, you'll want to make your campus a wind-free zone. Then they also go on to observe this later regarding college campus culture today, which by the way, even from when I was in college, uh, college campus culture has changed dramatically. Uh, But they say this, many university students are learning to think in distorted ways. By the way, these authors of this book, I know I've quoted this book a couple of times in the past, are not conservatives, are not Christians at all. Um, And so it's interesting the, the conclusions they make. But they say this, many university students are learning to think in distorted ways, and this increases their likelihood of becoming fragile, anxious, and easily hurt. We live in a culture today, that promotes softness. Um, Everywhere you turn, there are ideologies that produce softness, soft people. Uh, We have to uh, really bend over backwards today in many ways and contort ourselves to make sure that nothing that we say could possibly be offensive to anybody. And the list of offenses continues to grow, Day by day by day by day. Uh, It's hard really to even keep up with the speed at which new offenses are being created on a daily basis. I heard someone say this one time. Soft teaching makes hard hearts, and hard teaching makes soft hearts. We might borrow biblical terminology and go to the book of Jeremiah In chapter 4 and verse 3, where we read, Break up your fallow ground. You can, uh, as an individual, not receive God's word easily if you are someone who is likely to be an overly sensitive person. You have to be able to overlook offenses. Proverbs 19, verse 11 says, good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 21 says, do not take to heart all the things that people say. <laughs> Don't worry about what people, people are saying about you, lest you hear your servant cursing you. First Corinthians chapter 13 and verses 4 through 5, love is patient and kind Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. This word irritable means to be easily provoked. 1 Corinthians 13 says, Love means that you are not easily uh, provoked by others. Luke uh, 7, and verse 23, Jesus says, Blessed is the one who is not offended. By me. Sometimes, as Christians, by being overly sensitive, that can be the barrier that prevents us from getting the medication that we so desperately need from God's Word. If we come to God's Word and we are simply offended by what it says, then we are preventing ourselves from being able to hear the truth and the medicine that we so desperately need. Now, by the way, uh, and I think this will come. Clear as we go through the passage today. Um, if we were to go on the other side of this, we are not trying to make a case for being offensive. <laughs> okay, this is not at all what scripture is teaching us. We are not to say, what, how can I say this that is going to be the most offensive to these people so that I can most likely <laughs> get them to walk away? That is not at all. We understand the biblical model of gentleness and meekness and all of those kinds of things. But we are saying that increasingly, just simply reading passages of Scripture are increasingly offensive in our current culture today. And by being offended, we can be those who withhold uh, from ourselves the truth that we need. This is the state of our culture. Every culture um, kind of has its own sins that it struggles through, its own weaknesses, its own strengths, and those kinds of things. Um. Our culture is that we are a soft culture. Um, we are a culture that's overly sensitive, easily offended, and the way that Paul is going to deal with the Corinthians in the text today and the way that Paul dealt with the Corinthians in last week's text could really hardly be tolerated in our current passage, or current uh, culture today. But Paul's firm tone and his strict words are not to be interpreted as coming from hostile motives. His actions instead come from his desire to love and cherish these people that are so precious to him. And so let's see how this uh, unfolds uh, in front of us today. First Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 14 through 21. We are finishing up chapter 4 today, so we're making some good progress through 1 Corinthians uh, and finishing up chapter 4. Beginning in verse uh, 14, we read this. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then be imitators of me. This is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in the church. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I will find out, not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love? In a spirit uh, of gentleness. There are two sections that we're going to see in this text today Paul's uh, paternal appeal in verses 14 through 17, and then his pastoral accountability in verses 18 through 21. Now, in order to understand the context of where we are, we are kind of jumping in today in verses 14 through 21. You really need to understand all of the the water that's gone under the bridge uh, up until this point. Uh, You need to understand the context specifically of last week's passage. You might remember that we said last week was the pinnacle of Pauline sarcasm, Uh, Paul was practically mocking these Corinthian Christians, and he told them to get a little bit of a recap from that. He said, "Already you have all you want. This is sarcasm. Already you've become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign, so that we might share the rule with you." Paul is saying, "Man, you guys are rich. You're proud. You have made it. You have arrived. You are the ones." And then he kind of says, and I wish you were the ones, because then I could kind of benefit from this too and get in on some of the action. Paul, in uh, that passage last week, disciplined these Corinthian Christians with a two-by-four. And now he kind of smooths it over just a little bit in our first verse of the passage today in verse 14, because he says this, I don't write these things, these sarcastic things, to make you ashamed but to admonish you as my beloved children. I'm trying to tell you hard truths because as we said uh, earlier, uh, hard teaching makes soft hearts. He wants his people to understand the truth, to know scripture, to know the word. We might take away uh, a principle if we would just pause here for a moment and perhaps a principle or an application here and, and simply say that Godly Christians admonish one another. Uh, the word here in uh, 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 14 that is translated in our English text as admonish is the Greek word uh, nutheteo. Some of you may uh, know that sounds a little bit familiar because uh, we get uh, the, the word nuthetic from this, uh, which is actually just a transliteration into the English, nuthetic counseling. Um according to one lexicon the word ad, uh, admonish here means to counsel about avoidance or cessation of an improper course of a, a conduct to admonish to warn or to instruct and you'll observe that Paul here is admonishing these Corinthian Christians specifically as my beloved children this is done paternally he's doing this As a father would speak to his children, fathers, uh, we know, need to be firm with our children. If you are doing what you are supposed to be doing as a father, there are going to be times when you are going to offend the sensibilities of your children. And you might say something strong you might say something firm you might admonish them stop doing this behavior we don't do this kinds of behavior we do this instead and you may even follow that up with i'm not telling you this because i don't love you i'm telling you this because i love you because what you're not seeing is if you stay on this road you're going to get hurt really really bad and i would you're going to get hurt one way or the other you're either going to get hurt now by my words or you're going to get hurt 10 miles down the road but when you get hurt down there it's going to be with interest it's going to be a lot harder than the hurt that's going to happen right now and i love you and i care for you and i want the best for you this is what paul is saying he's saying I know these are strong words. I know this is harsh. I know that this is going to offend you. But I love you. I care about you. I care for you. This reminds us of 3 John chapter, or verse 4, where John says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. I mean, what what parent doesn't want this for their own children. No greater joy than my children are walking in truth. And Paul wants the same thing uh, for his own spiritual children in, uh, in Corinth. He wants his spiritual children to walk in truth. This is the same disposition that Paul has for the Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 11 through 12, For you know how like a father with his children we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. None of this, and I gave this caveat at the beginning, none of this is to say that we are to pursue harshness for the sake of harshness. Rather, it's teaching us that we must not flee a firm hand when necessary. It is needed And in fact, we are to view a firm hand as a fatherly act of love, as Paul is doing right here. It also teaches us to receive, to be recipients of a firm hand of admonition or admonishment from someone else with joy. So as Christians, we should be accustomed to both, to giving admonition and receiving admonition and unfortunately today's climate prefers to give admonition and not to receive it let me just encourage you that you should be inviting the admonition of your brothers and sisters here into your own lives it should be welcomed into your life and you should request it into your life Do you have anything, any sin in me that you see? Do you have any way that you can encourage me to put off sin and pursue Christ more? And instead, we often put up barriers instead of receiving those things. We receive them with oftentimes great frustration. This ought not be the case. And in Paul's specific situation, he already has a fatherly bond with these people He appeals with them graciously in the next verse. He says, though you have countless guides in Christ, you don't have many fathers. I became your father in Christ through the gospel. So Paul is saying, there are many guides that you have in Christ. There are many pastors and elders and spiritual leaders that you could go to. He said, but how many people can you say have actually led you to Christ? I'm your spiritual father. Receive my admonition. He feels a kinship towards them. And so based on this kinship and this relationship, he urges them to take action. And this action specifically looks like this in verse 16. I urge you to be imitators of me. Imitate me. Be like me. Seems a little odd. Why does this seem odd to us? If you read this too quickly, you might get the wrong or the odd impression. Uh, Because Paul, he has already, at the beginning of chapter 1, condemned these Corinthian Christians for what? What did he tell them to stop doing? This sectarianism, right? I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas. And now he's saying, imitate me, I'm the one. <laughs> don't, don't, be all, don't be all divided into all these, just follow me. I'm, I'm the one who rises to the top. Be imitators of me, not, not Cephas, not Apollos. They don't have their act together, I do, so be imitators of me instead. Um, this is kind of maybe, if, if you kind of read through this at a fast clip, you're like, what are you, what are you, how, how are you saying this? Um... You might think that he's saying, stop with all the sectarianism. I'm the real one you want to follow. But this is hardly the case because, context, 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 Paul broadens this out later in 1 Corinthians 11 in verse 1. He says the same thing, be imitators of me, but he gives a qualification of this, right? As I am of Christ. So this is not an unqualified exhortation. This is an exhortation that has a qualification to it. Paul is saying that you imitate me in the places where I am imitating Christ. He's not asking them to give a blind commitment to him. He's not saying, whatever I do, you do. I mean, Paul has already said, I'm the chief of sinners. So is that what he's saying? Follow me in all the ways that I am the chief of sinners? No. He's saying, imitate me. According to this one qualification, as I am of uh, imitating Christ, it is a calculated and discerning commitment to follow Jesus by following the examples of godly child, uh, Christians. And this is clarified as well in uh, Ephesians five: one, because here, same writer Paul, says, "Therefore be imitators of God okay so so if you take these three together. Imitate me, imitate me as I follow Christ, imitate God. Paul is telling us, I want you ultimately to follow Christ, to follow God. And so if I am doing anything to be a model of that, follow that. And the implication is, in the ways that I'm not following Christ, don't follow those particular things. Paul does not do, Paul does not say the adage that many parents have said, and hopefully none of you parents have said this, but the old adage that goes, uh, do as I say, but not as I do, right? Uh, That is not what Paul says at all. Paul is saying, I'm going to tell you what to do, and I'm also going to show you what to do. I'm going to model this. Um, Every one of us here today with this qualification, as I am of Christ, every one of us should, I'm not saying we all can, we all should be able to say, imitate me. With, with the qualification, as I imitate Christ. Okay? The Puritan Thomas Brooks says, example is the most powerful rhetoric. Uh, there is something to someone's example perhaps say endurance through a hard situation that really can give us the encouragement to press on. Uh, In his 70 resolutions, Jonathan Edwards says this, resolved, whether I hear anything spoken in commendation of any person, if I think it would be praiseworthy in me that I will endeavor to imitate it. Whenever I see someone else doing something praiseworthy, imitate that. Godly imitation is a good thing, again, provided that it stays on the rails. And that's all that we're saying here is that godly imitation of our brothers and sisters in Christ must stay on the rails. This does not mean, by the way, and I'll give one more qualification on this, that we measure ourselves by others. We are to measure ourselves by God. So I want to show you in 2 Corinthians here. Clarification again. We're understanding this command to imitate me in its context. It's to be done as he imitates Christ. Here's another qualification: not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves. For when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with another, they are without understanding. So we're not saying okay, I'm better than this person, I'm worse than this person. We're, we're ultimately comparing ourselves to the Lord, and yet God has given to us some godly examples to follow in this present age. Um, so w- with, with these ditches that we could run into, with this risk, why, um, why exhort anyone to imitate him at all? Wouldn't it be much easier for Paul to just say, imitate Christ like he does in Ephesians? Why should we call for others to imitate us? And I, I, would, I would perhaps surmise here that the reason for this appeal is that because while we may understand intellectually biblical commands, we sometimes struggle to flesh those out in the real world. Am I alone in that? Or do, do you say, sometimes I struggle to know... And particularly when you're taking... Um, and trying to merge biblical commands that are hard for us to merge. So, so, even in the present text today, there's a firmness and yet there's a gentleness. And we say, what does it look like as a Christian to be able to do both in my exhortation so that I don't exhort someone with no gentleness at all and I'm harsh and uncaring? And on the other hand, I exhort someone with so much gentleness and so much passivity that I've really neglected from even sharing the truth with them. And so while we have these biblical commands to to be firm and to speak the truth, on the other hand, we know that we're supposed to do this with a spirit of gentleness and meekness. And sometimes it's just helpful to have an example of someone doing that. Say, that's what that looks like to bring those things together. Um, having a godly person to follow and imitate can be helpful to us um, to know how to really implement a lot of these biblical truths to, to really help us with the application of the biblical truths. I know this is what scripture says. I'm struggling to know what this looks like with the boots on the ground kind of a thing. H- help me understand. So, so what we're saying is that that both are right and both are needed. We need the exhortation from scripture. And, and we need an example to follow. We need someone to say, they're modeling this for me, and they're doing both of these things, whatever those things might be. Uh, another example would be a godly Christian going through intense suffering. Uh, you might say, trust in the Lord through your trial, And then there's something that gives you that motivation of their trusting in the Lord through their trial. And that's really hard. I don't know how they're doing it, but that's what I have to do in my particular trial. And so so Paul says, imitate me. Follow me as I follow Christ. Seeing someone else provide an example of Christ's likeness can motivate us to have the courage to obey. And so this is what Paul wants for these believers and he wants them to imitate him, and part of the way that he does this is through sending them Timothy in verse 17. This is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. So Timothy is almost as boots on the ground. I'm going to show you how to imitate um, Christ. I'm going to give you some examples here. And so what do these first four verses of our passage remind us today of? they teach us that admonishing others even with firmness is a good and godly sign of paternal love and it is love one must follow christ so they can exhort others to imitate me so so for me to be able to say imitate me as i imitate christ i need to myself be following christ And the hope is, of course, that this can be done with gentleness, with meekness. Um, But this does not exclude the possibility of needing a firm hand. And this is where Paul ratchets it up a little bit, kind of like he did last week. This is Paul's pastoral accountability. In verse 18, he says this, Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I will find out the talk of these arrogant people, or I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with a spirit of gentleness? Paul here really shows that he is not messing around. He says, I'm going to give you this. I'm going to show you my love but I'm serious, guys. That's what Paul is saying. I'm serious about this. His directness is what we were talking about from the start regarding the softness of our age. He accuses them of being arrogant. And, and what the context was as far as why he does this, we don't exactly know. Perhaps they were accusing Paul of being too much of a coward. Oh, Paul's not going to come face us. He's, he, he wouldn't dare come here. But Paul says he will come to them soon. Again, he puts out that caveat here. What's the caveat? I will come to you soon, what? God willing, right? If the Lord permits. Um, He is not so arrogant himself to assume that he could act against the Lord's will. And this is, of course, the disposition in James, where James says you ought to say if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. We're not to be presumptuous on God's will. Paul does this here. He yields to God's sovereignty. He tells the arrogant Christians, I will find out not their talk, but their power. We'll pause here for just a moment because there's a lot of confusion precisely about what Paul means by saying, uh, I'm going to find out not their talk, but their power. There's a little bit of debate. Bang what exactly is Paul meaning here when he says, I'm going to come, and I'm going to find out what their power is. I'm not concerned about their talk, but their power. Um, I would suggest that this is likely a contrast with the power of the gospel. And the reason for this is because the next verse says the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. In other words... The gospel, or God's kingdom, is not just religious talk. It is not just intellectual and academic talk. We don't preach week after week, and we don't sing songs week after week, and we don't do Bible studies week after week because we enjoy having our ears tickled a little bit. Because we say, this will be really fun to just debate this stuff back and forth. We talk about these things because we really believe that they are effective, or we might say efficacious. We believe that they are powerful. We believe that the gospel really and truly can change your heart. So there's power in the gospel. And I would suggest to us that Paul is uh, looking at a similar theme. He's saying, I'm not interested in all your talk I'm interested in seeing what comes out of your talk. What what kind of power do you have? You want to talk and talk and talk and go on and on and on about all your wisdom, but does it really do anything? Does it really have any effect or power? Do you actually have power to convert souls and help people grow in their sanctification? So, in opposition to all these arrogant people, God's kingdom is comprised of what? Of power. Of power. All these arrogant people can produce nothing. God's word what? Produces all kinds of things, particularly the change in human hearts. You need more than re-education. You need a heart change. And there's only one thing that can perform a heart change, and that is God himself. On this verse, um, Thomas Manton says, sorry for the little bit of uh, old English here. He says, It standeth not in notions and proud boasts of knowledge or empty discourses, but in the effectual force it has in the heart of man. What he's saying here is that it doesn't matter about all your your theories, all of your proud boasting, all of your intellectual jargon, your empty talk, but at the end of the day, does what you're saying have an effective force on the heart of man? Does this really change the human heart. We preach not because we believe it's popular in our culture, but because we believe it's effective and because we're commanded to do it too. But we believe believe that God's word really changes hearts. Christianity is more than an academic pursuit. It actually changes lives and hearts. This is why I would suggest the bulk of what passes today as Christianity in America is actually nothing more than a hollow shell because it consists of a lot of talk, but little efficacy, little power. One can think of the way that the healing ministries, quote-unquote, consists of lots of talk, lots of uh, fancy uh, theatrics, all this speaking in tongues and all of this kind of stuff. But what is there to show from it? How many are healed from these kinds of healing ministries, quote-unquote? What is there at the end of the day to prove that they're right? Nothing. Paul says, I don't care about your talk. Show me your power. Oh, it's empty. It's not producing anything. But something is different with the gospel. The gospel is more than just talk. There is the testimony of changed lives and changed affections and denying of self and incremental growth in likeness. That is where the meat is at. That is where the difference is. Paul has no fear. He's going to expose the errors of the arrogant by showing them all you have is an empty shell. He's so serious about this that he says this. What do you wish? What do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline or with love and a spirit of gentleness? He gives them an option. I'll come with discipline or I can come with gentleness. Uh, in the Greek, this says, I can do this the easy way or the hard way. <laughs> this, this is what he's saying at the end of it. Wait, take your pick. Do, do, do you want to do this the easy way, or do you want to do this the hard way? And to be honest with you, it, it, this, is, this is really what Paul is saying. He doesn't want to have to come and discipline them in person with a two-by-four. He, he wants to be able to come with a spirit of gentleness but he also doesn't shy away from being severe and straight to the point if he has to be. And by the way, this is a side note here, the rod of discipline is not incompatible with love. Have you forgotten, Hebrews 12, the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one who? That he loves. He loves and chastises every son whom he receives. What is incompatible with love is a lack of discipline. Hebrews teaches us that love requires discipline in certain scenarios. And Paul is willing to be as disciplinary as he has to be, uh, or he simply says, it's your choice. How do you want me to come and meet you? So, um, so what do we do with this today? Well, for one, in the context of 1 Corinthians as a whole, we are landing the plane today in Paul's talk on Christian sectarianism. He began in chapter 1 by saying, don't say, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas. He criticized them for their lack of unity And he has been talking about that again and again and again. And you remember the different ways that he's done this. He specifically has reminded the Corinthians that the reason you're so divided is because you're following worldly wisdom. And uh, the way to become united as Christians is to embrace godly wisdom. And so quite uh, directly, we said on this point, uh, worldly wisdom divides and godly wisdom unites. And this is what Paul has been teaching us again and again and again. Um, What began with Paul admonishing them towards Christian unity has ended with this verse here where he's going to come ready to discipline them if necessary. Paul concludes this section of 1 Corinthians with a rather pointed call to imitate him. This, of course, would include Paul's view on earthly and worldly wisdom. Paul began in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 by saying, God is going to destroy worldly wisdom. He told them, what the world thinks is wise is actually foolish in God's economy, and what appears to be foolish to the world is actually wise in God's economy. It's flipped. And they embraced what the world said was wise. The very thing that God was intent on destroying. God said, I'm going to destroy all of this wisdom, and you're over here playing with all of this wisdom. Because of that, they started fighting and not getting along with one another. You will never experience gospel unity if you are embracing the wisdom of the world. Paul then calls them to abandon this. And instead to imitate him, meaning that they let go of earthly wisdom and embrace godly wisdom, which means now welcome to the world of public ridicule. Welcome to the world of everyone thinking you are a fool. But this is God's way. They get to be treated like trash because the world hates God. Paul tells them all of this because he really loves them and he really cares for them and he really wants the best for them. But it's going to be hard. So he warns them of these things. And he does get a little bit strict in his tone. He gets a little bit harsh. He gets a little to the point. He gets so to the point that he gets a little bit sarcastic. And then he says, I'm only doing this because I really love you. Add to this difficult reality that today we are living in a generation of soft people and soft words. If anything, these words in 1 Corinthians are all the more difficult to communicate to people today. People want soft answers, not sharp or stinging answers. And again, this is... We're we're not saying... Let's think of the most offensive way we can say this. This is not what we're trying to do. But we are saying that there are going to be times when we simply read the text of Scripture. Simply read the text of Scripture, and the response is hostility. Don't avoid the hostility by neglecting the word. That's what we're saying here. So I want to kind of uh, land the plane today here with uh, some application. Uh, Number one, if you happen to be one of these people that needs this, put off your oversensitive spirit and embrace humility. Receive the word of God with humility. Um, Number two, Pursue a lifestyle where you can call others to imitate you as you imitate Christ. Can you say today, imitate me as I imitate Christ? Does that feel weighty to you at all? Get to a place where you can say that. Repent where you need to repent. Trust where you need to trust. Put off the sin that you need to put off. So that you can point to one another here in this room and say, follow me as I follow Christ. And then finally, admonish your brothers and sisters in Christ with a loving spirit. Again, according to Hebrews, um, these can be done together. In fact, they should be done together. Don't shy away from confronting those who need to be confronted. But don't be a jerk about it either. Do it with a spirit of love, a spirit of meekness, and ultimately, a spirit for their restoration. Your goal is not to win an argument, but to win a soul. Which means there are times when you keep your mouth shut. And then there are times when you speak. The wise person knows the difference between those two things. And how to accurately disciple the heart. If you are one who does not know Christ to begin with today, I would encourage you to um, to come to Christ through repentance and belief in him. Um, the message of the gospel, I think, is actually a very simple message. It's, you're a sinner. You deserve God's wrath. So repent from your sin and trust in Christ. And the reason that so few people take uh, pursue this is because of hard hearts. And I think part of this is because of exactly what we talked about. When you repent and trust in Christ, you are making a declaration. And the declaration that you're making is, I am a bad person. And we don't want to make that declaration. When you say, I trust in Christ, you are making another declaration. And you're saying, I'm needy. And that doesn't go well in a world of self-sufficiency. Put off the pride. Put off the arrogance. Put on humility and repent and trust in Christ. He is such a gentle and kind Lord. He's a loving master. And he loves us and wants the best. So let's pray. Thank you, God, for today. Thank you for the gospel and your kindness to us. Help us to look to you knowing that you are faithful